Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Um, is, you know, quite propitious, let's say it that way. This past week was Parsha Shmini. And in Parsha Shmini, um, one of, it's one of two narratives that occur in the book of Leviticus. Um, and uh, it recalls the death of Aaron's two sons. And actually, many of the Jewish mourning practices that we get come from details of that narrative. Um, and so Aaron's two sons, quite, quite bizarrely, are told by Moshe not to mourn. Um, what they're told is, um, don't, there are a lot of different things about what that means, but don't uh, let your hair grow wild, um, from which we get the mourning practice of, of what? Like, of, of growing a beard and not, not getting a haircut. Um, during Shiva and also during during Shloshim and sometimes carried out for the for the for the eleven months. Uvig dechem lo tifromu is don't rip your garments, um, and and that's actually one of the there are a few biblical references, but to where the mitzvah of kriya, where the um, where the tearing of the garment, where that tradition comes from. Um, we're also, so that's, that's just in this week's Torah portion. Um, we're also in the Omer. Um, so tonight, if you haven't counted yet, um, uh, to, we're, we're in the middle of the Omer. Uh, it's the 15th day of the Omer. And um, if you don't know this, it's actually a very, very strange time in the Jewish calendar because it is um, both joyous because we just finished Passover and we're in the middle of the month of Nisan. Um, I'll say to Rabbi Shmuley, this part of the calendar doesn't make any sense, right? It doesn't make any During Nisan, okay, this is just a little random thing, but you're not allowed to say Tachanun. Um, Tachanun are these very plaintive, almost sad prayers where we focus on our sinfulness, and you're not allowed to say Tachanun because for the whole month of Nisan, because you're so joyous about Passover, and yet this is actually a period of mourning. And um, rabbis don't perform weddings um, during the first part of the Omer. And, um, and I look like this actually for two reasons. Uh, one of them is there is a tradition not to shave um, during the first part of the Omer. My tradition is that I'll shave on Yom Ma'ut on Israeli Independence Day. Um, but the other reason is that I actually just got back from the Grand Canyon. Um, and, and the reason that I'm dressed like this in my hiking boots is that um, I literally, everything that I'm carrying on this trip, I had to lug 4,000 feet up from the from at the base of the Grand Canyon. So, um, so I said this is gonna be a little bit more um, informal. I, I came to talk about, um, about my book. Um, the book is called Faith Unravels, A Rabbi's Struggle with Grief and God. Um, and I think the title of the session, what we um, called this was about forgotten mourners. 
Um, and, uh, and, and what I want to do tonight is um, I want to read you a, just a um, couple of pages from the very beginning of the book um, and then talk about um, the book and the, and the issues that it raises. Um, it is what I describe as a rabbinic grief memoir. Um, it's a story of my own journey through grief um, after the death of uh, two very, uh, of two close friends. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about the plot in a minute. There are no plot spoilers. Um, uh, it's, it's a memoir, um, and there's a reason why um, it's a memoir. It's about sharing a story, um, and it's also about that process of, of grieving. Um, what happened to me, and I'll, I'm, I'm going to read from the first few pages in a minute, um, I had uh, a best friend um, growing up whose name was Jay Rosen. Um, Jay, uh, I met Jay when he was in remission um, from leukemia. And one of the reasons I think that Jay and I hit it off, um, you know, we hit it off for a number of reasons, but one of them was that we met, um, and I didn't know that he... Uh, that he had leukemia. Um, he was in remission, and um, while his classmates who had known him earlier in junior high um, sort of knew him as the leukemia kid, I knew him just as Jay. And I think that there was a part of him that very much appreciated someone who was friends with him, um, where that wasn't the first filter through which, um, through which I saw him. Um, Jay and I were, um, we were in show choir together. I have very embarrassing pictures of myself in a green sweater and yellow pants or something like that from high school, which we won't be taking out tonight. And, um, and, and we actually were roommates in college. Um, and when I was a senior in college, Jay came out of remission. Um, and uh, several years later, actually a few months after I got married, um, Jay passed away. Um, he died of leukemia. Um, Years later, when I was the director of Camp Ramah in California and I was working with Carol, um, I had another very, very close friend um, whose name was Joel Schickman. Joel was the Rosh Musica. He was the director of the music program. And, um, and one weekend in January, our families, um, they, they, Joel and his, and his wife Heather have three boys, the same ages as our three boys. Um, so 18, 16, and 12 are how old my kids are now. Um, but they were much younger then. And we were away on a weekend, and Joel was not feeling well. And um, went to the, uh, they went to get him checked out on Monday and was diagnosed with leukemia. And, uh, and Joel struggled and, and, uh, and passed away in November uh, of that year um, after uh, just an 11-month period between diagnosis and, and death. And, and when that happened, um, what I realized uh, is that there was grieving which I had not um, really done uh, from Jay's death many years before. And where I was was I was in the position of being a rabbi. Um, I was there trying to work with kids and trying to lead a community. Um, and was struggling very, very much myself, and had a lot of questions about how do I, how do I move on? Um, what does it mean for a rabbi who doesn't seem to know what the answers are? Um, and how long should I keep doing this? And, and those sorts of things. Um, so the book traces my own journey through that process. Um, if it's okay, uh, can I read you a, a page or two just from the beginning, just to give you a sense of it? 
Um, and then what I'd like to do, there are a few thoughts that I want to share, and then, um, and then we'll take time for questions and conversation um, to, to open it up and to, and to think about this um, together as a community, okay? The book begins um, in December of 1996. Our family gathers in San Jose, California. We spend the day at my sister's home waiting for her to give birth to her first son, Ari. He finally arrives in the evening. We head to the hospital to celebrate and return to her home for a festive dinner when my brother pulls me aside. Jay died this morning. The funeral is tomorrow. I'm so sorry, Daniel. I make flight reservations with TWA and a few hours later, I am on a red eye from San Francisco through St. Louis to Washington Dulles. At the funeral, Jay's coffin is lowered into the grave. Kaddish, the Jewish memorial prayer, is recited. Family and friends are invited to put dirt on the coffin. I approach and the rabbi hands me, an athlete in the prime of my youth, a small spade with some dirt and explains that placing dirt in the grave is a way of, quote, symbolically helping with the burial. I take the spade and meekly turn it over. A little dirt falls in. A small car is waiting. I sat in the back right-hand seat. There are four of us healthy young guys. We are quiet and the car idles. Soft earth rests beneath the tires. We wait for a line of cars to creep forward away from the graves. I turn and look through the rear view window. A few people mill around the tent where the family sat, while three men dressed in dark green uniforms casually shovel earth into, graze, into Jay's fresh open grave. An impulse rises in me, one I remember to this day with regret unacted upon. I want to open the car door, walk over and take a shovel, move the professionals aside and do it all myself. I want Jay to be buried by people who knew and loved him, not people paid to do it. Sitting in the car, I realize I don't want a damn symbol. I want the thing itself, not just a spade. I want to dig deep into the mound of earth, lift a full shovel and strain to swing it over to the grave. Now I yearn to get out of the car, move the grave diggers aside and dirty my shoes, to breathe hard and sweat through, through my shirt. I want to dump earth onto his coffin and fill the space where he will rest forever, like tucking in a child at night. That is what one does for a brother. That is what we do for those we love. But it is only a thought in my mind. The car creeps forward and the four of us drive away in silence across the winding streets of Northern Virginia. I then go on to talk about my first experiences of death with each of my grandparents. Um, my, my grandpa Sam uh, on my mom's side, and then um, my grandpa Arthur and grandma Beatrice, and finally my grandma uh, Lillian um, on my mom's side. And, um, and, I, and I'm just gonna pick up uh, after those descriptions. We cling to an illusion of safety. We try to protect ourselves by believing death happens according to a schedule. When we are young and a grandparent dies, we tell ourselves death happens to people who are old. I'm young, so I am okay. Jay's death took away from me the luxury of illusion. Death has its own schedule. I learned about Shiva from my grandparents' deaths, 
Shiva is a seven-day period of mourning beginning, with, beginning after a funeral. Mourners aren't supposed to leave the house, bathe, shave, have sex, or drink alcoholic beverages. The community makes prayer services, brings meals, and visits the mourners' home. Too often, people do not know what to say, so they avoid coming altogether, or they say things that are more hurtful than helpful. Jewish tradition teaches we should enter the home, sit quietly, and let the mourner begin the conversation. But many people are scared of silence, so they talk instead. I also learned that the only people who are required to sit shiva are family. The Jewish legal tradition defines a mourner as one of seven relatives, mother, father, sister, brother, son, daughter, or spouse. It is a bit strange, but in Judaism, being obligated to do something matters more than doing it because you want to. So if you're doing, if you're not required to mourn by Jewish tradition, for example, a friend is not required to mourn, it's like your mourning matters less. A friend's job is to provide comfort, not to receive it. So sitting in Jay's living room, I feel it is my and my family's responsibility to comfort Jay's younger brother, mom and dad, his family. I feel this way not because of anything that Jay's family said to me, but because it is what I've been told is Jewish tradition. I'm sad and bewildered. But in light of that tradition, those feelings strike me as selfish. I don't sit and cry. I help with the food instead. I speak about Jay when other people share stories. Later that afternoon, the meal concludes. The service ends. I hug Jay's family and spend some time with my friends outside the house. As just a friend and not a family member, Jewish tradition seems not to allow for my sadness and grief. So I say goodbye, drive back to the airport, and try to move on. As I look out the airplane window on the flight across the country, I need someone who understands what it is to lose a friend at a young age. I need someone who can tell me I'm not alone, but I am. So I needed someone to tell me that I was not alone, um, but I was. And it's that experience of aloneness and that experience of not fitting in to what I understood was the Jewish tradition um, that in some ways I re-experienced again when Joel um, died many years later. Um, I'll tell you what I can now say is, I guess, a funny story. Um, when Joel passed away, we flew to Dallas, and uh, I was there for the Shiva. And Heather, um, his wife Heather, we, we are best friends, um, close friends. We're still um, very close with each other. But, um, and, and we stayed with her, but we had, he died right before Thanksgiving, and it was Jay's, uh, it was my wife's mother's 60th birthday um, celebration in, that was happening over Thanksgiving in Atlanta, and we had already bought plane tickets, and so we flew back to Los Angeles, picked up our kids who were being watched by uh, some people from camp, and then we flew to Atlanta. And, um, and I found myself during the period of Shiva, uh, in, in Atlanta, um, sort of having family time. And the 
part of the story that I guess is a little bit funny now that didn't feel so funny then is that I remember we went to the, to the aquarium um, in Atlanta. And you know when you go into those parking garages, so we had rented a, a, a minivan and, we're, and I was pulling out of, you know, out of the parking space and there was one of those big cement poles that was right next to it. And of course, what did I do? I just, I crunched the, the minivan, right, the door right into the cement pole because looking back, I had no business being in Atlanta. Um, I was there physically, but emotionally um, that wasn't, where I was. Um, emotionally, uh, I was still very much in mourning over, um, over the death of my friend Joel. Um, and that feeling, so I, I want to I enter into, I guess, a few different ideas um, that, that I, I want to talk about um, as we think about grief and as we think about the questions um, that were raised by my own experience. First of all, the, the book is what I would call rabbinic grief memoir. Um, and rabbinic is important for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, my experience uh, was one where I started to ask myself the question, and I don't know if the other rabbis in the room have had um, this experience, but where you're going through something and you feel like you should have the answers and you don't. And you feel either like an imposter or you feel like you're not good enough. And it raised all sorts of questions of what does it mean for, how, who helps the helpers? And there are actually a lot of people, it's not just rabbis who are in this situation. Um, there are doctors who are constantly put in the position of needing to help others. Um, there are therapists and nurses. But the truth is, is that even if we don't do it professionally, um, the Jewish tradition tells us that one of our mitzvahs, one of our most important mitzvahs is nichum avelim, is comforting those who are in mourning. And so all of us are in that situation and sometimes we don't know what to do. And we may experience a sense of, um, of I can't do this because I can't even help myself. And asking those questions of, you know, there are many big communal questions that we can talk about of how do we make sure that people who are, who are in that position of needing to provide help um, have that support, but also asking ourselves the questions of how do I both provide comfort, but at the same time, how do I, how do I find comfort um, and consolation when, uh, and, and how do I provide it if I don't feel it myself? Those are, those are important questions. The second thing which I want to say is um, the book is a, a memoir, um, and Rabbi Shmuley and I have in common uh, Mayim Bialik. Uh, so, do you know who Mayim Bialik is? She's on the, the Big Bang Theory. Um, she's a wonderful teacher and educator. By the way, Rabbi Shmuley, you should bring Mayim. You should bring Mayim for, for the Valley Beit Midrash. That'd be a fantastic thing. We were talking about people to bring. She's an amazing speaker and an amazing thinker. Um, when I was at the Ziegler School of Rabbinic Studies in Los Angeles, uh, I started uh, Mike and I started a little bit different time. I was there in 1997. I don't think you had started yet. And, uh, and, and I w you were in 98. So 97, 98, I interned at the UCLA Hillel. And at that point, Mayim was a freshman um, at UCLA Hillel. And, uh, and so I, we baked challah together, and I sort of became 
a rabbi for her, and we kept in touch. And so as I was writing this book, um, the editor actually, or the publisher said, do you want to have a forward? And I said, I don't know, should I have a forward? And he said, only have a forward if you have somebody who's very well known and you know, may, people will you know, maybe read it a little more. I said, well, I know Mayim Bialik. And he said, oh, that would be great, yeah. So I called Mayim and I said, you know, we've never known each other. I've, you know, I've never thought of you as the, as the TV star or whatever, but you are. Um, would, you, would you write a forward for the book? And, and she said yes. And, uh, and she read it. And, and, I, and her experience was, um, she said, I, the story was really important, but I want, at the end of it, I want your advice, right? I want you to give me pointers. And the truth is, is that I, resist, I resisted giving pointers. And I'm going to tell you why. Um, now, I ended up giving in. And I said, OK, Mayim, for you, I'll, I'll do this. If you look in the, in the end, there's something called a reluctant. It's the appendix. It's called a reluctant guide. right? And, and it has pointers and ideas for how do you go through mourning? What are things that we can do? Um, but I'll tell you why I was reluctant. Um, I was reluctant because the, the thinker, the author, C.S. Lewis, once um, he wrote an, an, a very, very important book about grief called A Grief Observed. And the quotation from that um, that, that has informed a lot of my thinking is, is the following. Grief needs a history, not a map. Grief needs a history, not a map. And what he means by that is there are no recipes. There's no, I do not believe that there are recipes for if you do this and you do this and you do this, then you'll feel better. And what we can share is a history. What we can share is here's my story, right? I want you to know, by the way, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, right? You know that name, right? She's famous for... The, for having written about the five stages of grief. She said later on in her life, and the person with whom she wrote the book, that these have been very misunderstood. She said, I never wrote them to try and explain that, you know, to, to people as, as if they were a linear progression. Okay, we, I, I think I wrote these out, that denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance, right? We've all, we've heard about each of those. She said, I never, I never meant that everybody will experience those things or that everybody will experience those things in that order. She said, what I meant to do was to describe, to give people a way of identifying their experience, but you may experience three out of the five. You may experience them in very different orders. You may begin with acceptance and then find yourself in depression or anger or bargaining maybe months later, maybe weeks later. Maybe you will experience some of those things twice. So the idea that there's a recipe to all of this, I actually find to be very problematic. I also want to tell you a story, um, another story from Ramah, um, about someone who, so when I started working at Ramah, if you, if you know the camp, there's a place called um, Ma'agal Ilan, um, which is this it's a fire pit. So to build a fire pit at, uh, in Southern California is a huge deal, right? You, <laughs> they don't like that. There was a, you know, you heard about the big fires this summer. So, but we were a camp without campfires um, when I got there. And I said that, you know, we need, we need something. Let's work. So the fire department helped us to design. It's in ground and there's a hose right there. And it's, you know, there's nothing there within 100 yards of it that could, 
that could catch on fire. And, um, and, and the, it's named after, it's called Ma'agal Ilan, which means Ilan Circle, and it's named after a camper whose name was Ilan who, um, who passed away uh, before I started um, as the camper. And his family, uh, as the director, and his family, he loved music and loved the outdoors. And, and so his family helped us to, to build that. Ilan's uh, sister, Ilan's sister, um, I got to know her through this process and she went and, uh, and got married. And then later, um, her husband passed away. So she had lost not only her younger brother, but also her husband. And her husband had died from leukemia. And I went and visited with her. And I remember seeing her about 14 months, um, 14, 15 months after her husband died. And talking with her, and I asked her how, I said, how are you doing? And we were at a cafe and she didn't say anything. And I was quiet for a little, little while longer. And she started to cry. And what she said to me, and I've never forgotten this, what she said to me was, um, honestly, you're the first person who has asked that question and then had, hasn't needed the answer that will make you feel better. And she said, to tell you the truth, every day I drive to work, and every day if I didn't have kids, I would want to drive my car off the cliff. But I have kids. And what's more painful is that people are now telling me that I shouldn't feel that way anymore, that it's time to move on. She was experiencing a double pain. One of them was the sense of pain from the loss that she had experienced, but the second was a sense of pain from the community's schedule of how long she should feel a certain way. And therefore, the people to whom she turned to for comfort, she could no longer turn to. So these maps and these expectations are dangerous and they can be hurtful. And I want to say in my colleague's presence, I'm a rabbi. I, I like Judaism. Um, <laughs> I'm pro-Judaism, right? <laughs> Newsflash, rabbi likes Judaism. Uh, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. And I, and I will also say to you that Christians and Jews and, you know, Judaism has a tremendous amount of, of wisdom in our grieving traditions. Um, and, I, and I believe in that wisdom and the structure which we have around the practices of aninut, which is that period from when a person dies until the burial, and then for, for the shiva, and then the shloshim, and then the 11 months. There is a tremendous amount of wisdom because when your life has been turned upside down, the knowing that there is a way um, is incredibly comforting and incredibly important, and, and I acknowledge that. Um, but I think that there's a tremendous misunderstanding. And the misunderstanding is that if I do those things, then I'll feel better. And if I don't feel better, then maybe there's something the matter with me. And that's not true. Emotionally, we can feel one way. And sometimes our rituals 
and our practices and that structure maps out onto how we feel, and sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes, by the way, that's true for, for some, it works for some people and not for others. And sometimes it works for you, and then it won't work for you, and then it will work for you, and it changes. And so I, I always sort of take a step back and say um, that the guidance is there and the structure is there, but let's understand what it is and let's understand also what it, what it isn't. And when I wrote the book, I wrote it as a memoir um, to share my story, not to say my story is what you're going to experience, but rather to say maybe in my story um, you'll find a little bit of your own story. And you'll know that you're not alone and that other people have gone through this before. And in that we can find um, some comfort. Um, the last thing which I want to um, which I think is a little bit um, unique about the book uh, is that it addresses the idea of, of mourning a friend and, and, and those forgotten mourn of being a forgotten mourner. Um, because again, there's tremendous wisdom, I think, in that structure of saying, if you are a mother or a father or a sister or a brother or a son or a daughter or a spouse, then you are what we call a mourner and you fall into these categories and, here it, and here's the list of what you're going to do. And yet, there are those requirements to, to sit Shiva, um, but that doesn't mean that those are the only people who need comfort. Does that make sense? Okay. Just because you're not required to sit Shiva doesn't mean that you don't need comfort. And, and I, I'm going to do this on one foot. I'm, I'm actually working, uh, I'll share this with my colleagues over there, I'm actually working on a tshuva, um, on, a, on a rabbinic responsum for the, for the conservative movement. Conservative movement has a committee on Jewish law and standards. And, and I'm working on a particular tshuva because, uh, about, um, about what are our practices during festivals. Okay, because there's, there's a lacuna in Jewish law. Do you, do you know this problem? Okay. Have you ever heard this, that, that Shiva is cut off right before a festival? Right? Have you heard that before? And, and, and that is true. Okay? Um, the Shiva practices stop if, if, it, if someone dies two days before Sukkot uh, or two days before, before Pesach then the shiva only lasts for two days. If somebody, it, and also shiva can be postponed. So my, um, uh, my grandmother uh, died during Sukkot and the shiva gets postponed until after Simchas Torah. So it's very strange because you've gone through this experience and yet somehow you're supposed to wait, right? And then go and sit shiva afterward. But there's a misunderstanding, okay? Shiva is, are, are, the, are the things that we're required to do as individuals when we fall into that category of mourning. That's one mitzvah over here, okay? There's a second mitzvah, and it's actually a discrete mitzvah. The second mitzvah in that discrete mitzvah is nichum avelim, which means comforting mourners. And mourners doesn't just mean, it doesn't just mean somebody who's sitting shiva. It actually means somebody who's in pain and who's suffering. Maimonides says that mourning is, um, is, is an act of gimilud chesed, and the Mishnah actually says that 
When you have an act of gimilu chesed, which means an act of loving kindness, there's no shiur, there's no sort of stop and start point to that. That's something that's always there. We're all, we, there's no limit to the amount of comfort or, or to how often it is that we can say, oh, I'm done, right? I provided enough comfort to mourners. And, and that's true not just for people who fall into those categories, but also for people who, who don't. And so the question that I want to raise and maybe that we can talk about a little bit is, is how do we do this? And I, and I want to say to my colleagues who are here, um, how do we create communities that are providing comfort not only for people who fall into those categories, but for everyone who is hurting after a loss? Because those circles of pain ripple out. And there are people who, f who, who feel left out and maybe even betrayed by the very Jewish tradition that they turn to for comfort. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much. And now back to the learning. So a, sh a short story from, from my own experience. When Jay died, um, I had just gotten married. My wife, Jennifer, and I were living in Chicago. And I was going to a morning minion um, at the Chicago Loop Synagogue. It's downtown. Uh, and I got back. And this minion, by the way, started at 8 o'clock. And on weekdays, it finished at 8.17. And when there was a Torah reading, it finished at 8.22. Okay, but it was like... You know, chick-chock, let's go, you know, we're, let's move it on. And, um, and, and the people there knew me. I had been going for, for several months. And I showed up to the Minion, and the Mourner's Kaddish started, and I didn't stand up. And I didn't stand up because I'll tell you exactly what went through my mind, which I'm not holding up as an example. Dafka, I'm holding it up as an example not to follow. But what went through my mind is if I stand up, then people are going to say to me, who are you saying Kaddish for? And I'm going to have to tell them that I'm saying Kaddish for a friend. And if they find out that I'm saying Kaddish for a friend, then that will somehow diminish their mourning because they're saying Kaddish for family members, but I'm only saying Kaddish for a friend. And so I didn't stand up. And I think that's a mistake. I think it's a mistake to feel that way. Um, and I think that our communities, we have to challenge ourselves to say, how do we give people who maybe they don't fall within those categories the, the tools to express their grief and to, and to mark those moments um, for the sorrow that they feel? And, and I'll give you a few examples. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you my latest thinking on this. Okay. And, uh, and, and, then, and then maybe we'll stop and, and have a conversation. Um, number one, just to come back to that example about Kaddish, my, my general approach to these things is that we have an amazing tradition, right? And when it comes to grief, I actually think there's a lot of wisdom to the practices that we have. And when we can, I want to build on those. So for the Kaddish, you know, each of us, you can talk to your rabbis and figure this out. But um, there's no esor, there's no prohibition on saying to yourself, I'm going to say Kaddish for this person, even if I'm not a family member. 
Okay? There may be times to say, you know, I, I, I think the rabbis do say at other times if, if, if a person is mourning for too much, then they're, then, then they're mourning not for a person, they're mourning something else. I, I do actually think that we can, there is a temptation, maybe because of survivor's guilt, um, you know, there's a temptation to not want to not mourn, right? You want to sort of hold on to that because you feel like you're betraying the, the person who you love if you, if you move forward and you heal. So, so I understand that there, that can be too much, but there's no prohibition on, on saying to yourself, I'm going to take on this special mitzvah for this person because they meant a lot to me. And, and that could be the regular saying of Kaddish. Um, I'll give you another example. For You remember I told you about Kriya, which is the tearing of... So, by the way, in the olden days, they didn't have a black ribbon. Okay? You know that? Um, when it says that Jacob tore his garment when he, when he heard about uh, Joseph's death from, from Judah and from the brothers, he didn't take out a black ribbon. Okay? He tore his garment. Um, that is the original mitzvah. The, and the idea, the, the, the thing was you actually tore the garment in the moment when you heard the news, okay? Now, halakhically, you can either do that when you hear the news or you can do that ritually at the funeral as a way, as a way of beginning the practices. But I'll, I'll tell you something about that that I, that I didn't know, and this happened in 2007. I don't know if my colleagues know this or not. Um, when Joel died, so there is a halakha that is as follows. It's a piece of Jewish law that's as follows. If you are in the room when someone dies, whether you are related to the person or not, you perform Kriya. I was in the room when Joel died. I was a rabbi. I had never heard that before. And I didn't perform Kriya. And, and, I, and I mentioned that halacha because it, it, it's an example of how the tradition already has this little opening in the door a little bit. We, we thought that it only applied to seven people, but no. Actually, if you don't, even if you don't know the person at all, there's something existentially so important about the moment when a person's soul leaves the world that if you experience that moment, then you perform this mitzvah. So I want to offer, maybe, maybe it doesn't mean that at a funeral everybody performs Kriya, right? Because the family can have that special experience. Maybe when you do this, you don't say the blessing along with it. But maybe there is, maybe there is an act of Kriya that we can do, an act of tearing. Maybe it's not our garment. Maybe it's a piece of, of, of cloth. Maybe it's something from our friendship. But maybe that is another way for, for us to express ourselves through the Jewish tradition. Um, even if it doesn't sort of fit into, into those boxes. A third thing, uh, I don't know if you know this, my teacher uh, who presented me for ordination, her name is Reb Mimi Feigelson. She's a wonderful teacher. Um, she's a student of the Hasidic tradition. And, um, and halakhically, if your teacher, thank God Mimi's in perfect health, um, but if your teacher dies, the tradition is to sit Shiva for one day that there's a one-day shiva for someone who's not related to you because the tradition acknowledges the importance of someone who has been a teacher of Torah and says, even though 
sitting, you're not going to sit for the seven days. And when her teacher, Rabbi Mickey Rosen, died um, about 10 years ago, she sat Shiva for a day. And the community came over and had minyanim. So maybe it doesn't mean that we're going to say the whole community is going to go over to all of these different people's houses. And say, but maybe there's an individual practice of saying, I'm going to give myself one day. Right? I'm not going to race off to Atlanta. Or when I get to Atlanta, I'm not going to back my car into a, into a concrete pole. I'm, I'm going to sit Shiva for a day there in acknowledgment that even though this person wasn't a blood relative of mine, they meant something dear to me. And, and the last one that I want to throw out there, and I know that this is particularly relevant for, for, um, for, for, uh, for some people, is, um, is grandchildren. Okay? I want you to know this, and rabbis, you can listen up to this, because this is from Moed Katan. Okay? Um, the practice in the Talmud was that there were mourners who were, who were called shnigim la'avelut, which means secondary mourners. And the way that the rabbis defined it is that if you are related to someone who has suffered a loss and you would mourn for, for that person, okay? So if you're a grandchild and you're, and you're um, if, 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 if you're a grandchild, your grandmother or grandfather has died and your parents are mourning, you obviously would mourn for your parents, okay, if they left the world. Um, and you're in their presence, you actually um, join with their mourning. A and I'm going to share my own individual story about this. Um, my father died about 15 months ago. And we had the shiva at our home. And my son, Benjamin, um, who's now 16 years old, he was 15 at the time, um, when it came time to say Kaddish, he stood up and said Kaddish with me. I didn't, I didn't tell him to do that. I didn't tell him not to. It just sort of happened. But that actually fits into the category. He was a grandson who was mourning, and I can't tell you how much it meant to me. And, and I think that there are grandchildren also who, who experience a loss, and they are in this place of, I need to provide comfort to my parents, but I'm also hurting. And there need to be ways for us to figure out how do I give, how do I acknowledge the grief that, that you're also experiencing um, without necessarily making everything the same, right? I wouldn't want, I didn't say to my son Benjamin, you have to sit Shiva for seven days because it wasn't his father who died, thank God, right? But, but he was able to participate in a meaningful way. So all of these all of these, I think, are important questions. I hope that um, I, I, I think I want to end with, um, with, with just two thoughts. Um, one of them is that as we go through this process, that each process of grief is unique and um, that we find ways to express our grief and, um, and, and to grieve well. Um, and, 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 and I, maybe I'll, I'll finish just by reading the last, um, the last line of, the, uh, of, 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 the, of that reluctant uh, guide that, that Mayan made me write. 
Um, learning to grieve is learning how to live with courage and dignity in the face of an existential truth. We die each moment. Things fade each moment in front of us. Yet God bids us choose life so that you and your children may live. That is our task. I think that grieving is learning to, learn, when we learn how to grieve well, then we learn how to live well because we give voice to the loss that's there. Um, and by giving voice to the loss which is there, we ultimately are, are choosing life and choosing to move forward um, from the loss that we've experienced. Thank you. Thank you. So I would love to just hear some thoughts. I don't, I, I don't know what the exact format is or whatever, but um, either thoughts or reactions or questions, please you know, keep them limited so we're all you know, able to participate. But we're a small group. And tell me your name. Matthew. Matthew. Right. Well, I think a lot of those experiences come from, um, you know, a, a lot of this is teaching that we do generation to generation, right? So, you know, your father may not have turned to you and, 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 and had the language to talk with you about that, right? He didn't talk to you any time, right? So, so figuring out, you know, how do we be community for each other? And I want to say to, each, you know, to every person in this room, whether you have biological children and grandchildren or not, right, we all have a role to play in community. And, and, and so I would, you know, I would, I want to empower you to say, you can be on the lookout for that bar mitzvah child, right, who maybe, maybe you hear that someone has, you know, that they've experienced the loss before or, or after the bar mitzvah. And to give language, not to say this is what you have to do, but to share your story. And say, I want to know you, I, I want you to know, I, you know, this is something that I went through. That's one of the reasons we came to Longford Reform Synagogue now that everyone stands up for Potter. So there are, di this is a, a well. I'm a, asking the question. Right, right, right. So there are different, um, the, the Jewish tradition, as you know, is to argue about it, okay? Uh, you know, what's the, somebody says this, somebody says that. Yes, our tradition is to argue. Um, and there, and, and I, I, don't, I don't put down either tradition. Um, I think what I want to say is that most, many reform synagogues have a tradition of everybody standing um, to, and I think that there's a lot of, there are many merits to that because um, it does, uh, I, I think, um, create that opening for people to participate who might be saying to themselves, um, I, you know, I shouldn't be participating. Um, in my own synagogue, my practice, and some of this is just because of it's how I was raised, right? I mean, that's where a lot of our customs come from. It's what a custom is. Uh, I grew up in a shul where the people 
where, where the rabbi said, um, all those in mourning and those observing a yortzite, um, please rise. And the, the powerful piece of that is that I had a very powerful um, experience when my, when my father's father died. Um, I vividly remember sitting next to him and as he stumbled and cried as he said the Kaddish, um, I had a tremendous feeling of importance in responding, Amen. Right? And that was almost this thing that I could do to support my father. And I, I think there's strengths to either one, right? In the Reformed tradition, if everybody says Kaddish, I do think, well, but how, how do you figure out who's, who's just suffered a loss, right? Who, who is, you know, in, more in the middle of that process than not? And in the tradition which I implement in my own synagogue, the weakness of that is, hey, wait a minute, how do you make sure that, um, <laughs> that people don't do what I did when I was in Chicago and you're suffering but you suffer silently because you don't feel like you should, right? I don't think there's a right way, right? I think that both of them have strengths and weaknesses. Here's the way I want to, um, I think there is a tension. Uh, I, I want to explain it by means of an analogy to another Jewish ritual, okay? Um, there, so blessings, right? You, don't, you, you know what a blessing is, right? Hamotzi lechem min haaretz or, you know, bere or something like that, right? So there, I think there are two ideas behind a blessing. One of them is, um, I, I had this experience this week. I was in the Grand Canyon. Okay, it was last week, Monday through Friday. Okay, there's a blessing when you stand in awe of an incredible view or a mountain or, so there were many opportunities for me to say this blessing and, um, and the blessing that I would say is Oseh Ma'aseh Barishi, you acknowledge God as the one who who makes, not made, but continues to make the works of creation. Okay? So what you say is, you know, wow, I feel God, you know, as the creator of, of the whole world in this, in this place and in this moment. And when you say those blessings that way, the blessing in my mind is, gives you the language to articulate the feeling that you're having. Does that make sense? Right? You have this big feeling and it's so big and you don't have any words for it because it takes your breath away. And so the tradition gives you at least a vessel right, through which to, to say essentially, wow. Okay? Um, I would hear other people at the Grand Canyon who said, holy crap, <laughs> you know, which I would say is the secular version of the blessing, right? <laughs> right? But, and they're, cur I mean, it's very interesting. They're curse words that people like use because they're just so full, right? They've had this experience. So the bless, so there's that. But then 
Other times, blessings, okay, and, and here, this isn't specifically a blessing, but I'll, I'll give you the example. When I wake up in the, so Jewish tradition says that when you wake up in the morning, what you're supposed to say is, which means, essentially, I am grateful to you, God, everlasting King, that you've restored my soul to me, um, and how great is your faithfulness for doing that, Okay. Now, in that moment, I want to tell you, okay, you may believe me to be, I'm sure that Rabbi Kaplan is a higher spiritual soul than I am. I, on the other hand, <laughs> I, on the other hand, I will confess that when I wake up in the morning, I do not feel a sense of gratitude. Oh, thank you so much. What I feel inside is, oh God, give me a cup of coffee, right? <laughs> you know, um, that's, the, that's the sense of godliness that I feel. Um, but the, the language is there not to express how you feel, but to, um, to be an impetus to help, to try to get you to, to feel that way just a little bit more, right? In other words, it's there almost as a teaching moment to say it actually is a good thing to begin your day with gratitude that, you've, that, that you breathe, right? Because we don't, because we take that for granted. So there are two different ways it can work. One of them is that the, that the structure of Shiva and Shloshim and, and 11 months can, can express how we feel, right? And I actually think there is great wisdom in that, right? That at the end of Shiva, you know, sometimes we're done being cooped up, right? <laughs> right? And it, or at the end of 11 months, you know, we do have that sense of, uh, okay, right? I'm ready, right? And it expresses that. But whoa, right? There are other times when it, it doesn't, right? And I think it, it's not there to say you should feel this way. I don't, think it's, I don't think that it's there to say 11 months, if you're still feeling bad, you should stop feeling bad. That's that double hurt that I was talking about. I think what it is there to do is to say, um, this, we ask this of you for 11 months. Okay? We ask Kaddish of you for 11 months. Okay? And in terms of actions, this is something that's not required of you anymore. But let's have some humility and acknowledge, like I said before, that mitzvah of nichum avelim, of comforting mourners, has no shiur. It has no stop and start point. Right? And, I, and I don't think that there are feelings that we have let, I'm gonna, this is one of my core principles. I'm gonna give it standing on one foot. Right? The seal of God is truth. I don't think that there's anything that we feel truthfully and authentically that is alien to God. And so if that's who we are and where we are, I think that God understands that. I think human beings are much less forgiving. And, and, uh, and, and there's that place that where we need to be better at this. And, and, and I'm going to push us a little even further. In a world where, um, where we're wondering you know, a lot of the time, what's, what is Judaism's, what's the point, 
of this whole you know, Judaism thing. We have to do this well. If we don't comfort well, if we don't take care of each other well, um, what are we doing? What are we doing? Right? Uh, I think that we, we've missed one of the core essences of, of the importance of, of Jewish life. Thank you very, very much for coming. If you are, you can give yourselves a round of applause. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.